Ronan Farrow's explosive New York Times bestseller, Catch and Kill, is now in paperback and newly updated for 2020. Meticulous and devastating, raves the Associated Press. Part All the President's Men, part spy thriller. For more information, visit catchandkill.com. Ask anyone who's had a major water leak and they will tell you most of the damage could have been prevented if they had been able to stop the leak sooner. Groa, maker of the innovative German-engineered shower and faucets, is helping busy homeowners like you prevent water damage and protect your home even when you're away. The new Groa SenseGuard is an intuitive, smart water control that detects leaks, alerts you via your smartphone app, and automatically shuts off the water supply before more damage can be done. Protect your home, vacation, or rental properties with Groa SenseGuard and quickly stop water damage before a drip becomes a flood. You can save 35% on Groa SenseGuard only at groa.us slash hive19 that's g-r-o-h-e dot u-s slash hive19 once again you can save 35% off Groa Sense Guard only at groa.us slash hive19 Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. So today, I don't have just one special guest, but I have two very special guests. And we're going to be talking about one topic, but from two different points of view. So my first guest is Casey Newton, who is the Verge's reporter on all things tech. And he recently had a fascinating story which took you inside one of the facilities for Facebook that is forced to do moderation of all the worst content on the platform. So imagine for a moment that you have a new job as a moderator at Facebook, just to kind of paint the room for what this is like. Every single time someone tags a video or photo that breaks a rule, maybe it's a murder or a beheading or a suicide or something that looks like child porn, it's your job to decide if that content should be allowed on the platform or banned. And Casey went inside and understood that Facebook doesn't pay these people very well, they don't treat them very well, they have to ask for a bathroom break. It's a crazy, crazy story of a side of Facebook that we'd never really hear about. Um, and so we're going to go inside this facility with Casey and learn what it's like to work there. My second guest is someone who actually made his fortunes on nothing else but Facebook. His name is Roger McNamee. He was one of the earliest investors in the company, uh, made more money than probably everyone listening to this podcast combined, uh, and now is at the point where he realizes that the thing that made him rich is also the thing that has destroyed democracy, and he's kind of on a crusade to try to stop Facebook from going in the direction it's going in. Uh, and he kind of helps us understand a little bit if Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg feel bad about the way the world has turned out. So without further ado, let's jump in with Casey and then stick around afterwards as I sit down and talk to Roger. Uh, Casey, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. This is uh, this has been like years in the making. Even before, <laughs> even before podcasts existed, I was trying to get you on my podcast. <laughs> well, I'm excited to be here, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, of course. So uh, let's jump in. You wrote a story uh, last week about um, uh, the life of moderators at Facebook uh, that exploded. Um, it exploded all over the internets. I didn't actually s- didn't look on Facebook. I'm sure there was a lot of comments there, but I saw it all over <laughs> Twitter. I saw it in the news. I saw it referenced everywhere. You were on the front page of Drudge. It was uh, celebrity sightings everywhere. Tell us a little bit about how this story came about and um, and what was what you learned from it. And I mean, it's a kind of insane, insane story. 
Yeah. So, you know, if you're using Facebook and you see a piece of content that you think shouldn't be there, maybe it's a a dirty photo or a disturbing video, uh, you can click a button and report it and say, hey, I think this breaks the rules. And if you do that, then it has to be reviewed by a human being to decide whether it does. And this story is about the human beings on the other end of that transaction. What happens to people who all day, every day are seeing hundreds of posts a day that might be very disturbing. And and by very disturbing, you're talking like the worst of the worst, right? Yeah. So um, everything from terrorist content like ISIS drowning videos to drug cartel beheadings to child exploitation, uh, just, you know, the, the worst that humanity has to offer. It's crazy. Okay, keep yeah. going. Sorry. So in terms of how the story came about, I write a daily newsletter about social networks and democracy called The Interface. And at the end of every edition, I ask people to send me tips. And in December, I got one of those tips from someone who said, hey, I'm a content moderator uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. And I work for a company called Cognizant that Facebook has contracted to do this kind of moderation work. And the working conditions here are really disturbing. Um, Could we hop on the phone? And so we had a conversation and that conversation eventually led me to seven people who either are doing this work now or did it in the recent past. And uh, they all just had like crazy stories to tell me. So what was some of the craziest things you, you heard? I mean, the story is just insane, but yeah. what, what were the things that stand out to you now? So the there are a couple of things I would say. The first one is the working conditions really are very rough. If you contrast the life of a Facebook employee with a Facebook content moderator, it's really stark. So the the median Facebook employee makes about $240,000 a year in salary, stock, and bonuses, whereas a content moderator in Phoenix makes $28,800 a year, right? Jeez. So like, you know, uh, barely more than, than 10% of what a Facebook employee makes. Um, the time of these employees is managed down to the second. So every time they want to use the restroom, they need to click a browser extension to let somebody know about it. They get only nine minutes a day of what is called wellness time. So if they see something very disturbing, you know, maybe they see somebody commit suicide on a a live video stream, which is something that happens, um, they only get a few minutes a day to kind of stand up from their desk and, (laughs) and try to process that. Um, and then I just found that the, the employees were coping with it in ways that were very understandable, but, um, you know, raised some concern. So a lot of, uh, moderators told me that they routinely would get high on their breaks to kind of numb the emotional pain. Uh, they have sex at the workplace, um, in what one of them described to me as trauma bonding. Uh, they sort of feel unnaturally close to their coworkers, um, because the coworkers are the only ones who really understand the, the, the job. And one of the reasons for that is because they sign these really restrictive non-disclosure agreements that prevents them from even really discussing their work with a close friend or a loved one. Um, and so the job can be very isolating. And then the, the final thing that they, uh, that they told me was that the more that they would moderate content about fringe conspiracy theories, you know, like, um, 
you know, fraudsters saying that, you know, 9-11 wasn't a terrorist attack or that the Holocaust never happened, uh, they would gradually come to believe those things. And so I talked to folks who uh, had sort of come to embrace those conspiracy views, you know, as a result of just being bombarded by them uh, in the Facebook reporting queue. So I, I was I, I don't use social media very much anymore, and I had I didn't use Instagram for a, probably a good year, and then I um, I started boxing recently, and I um, uh, so I, I downloaded Instagram just to see some like fun videos of, of fights and like techniques and things like that, and I was scrolling through Instagram a couple of weeks back, and for whatever reason the algorithm thought that I liked watching people beat each other up and mm. it showed me a video uh in russia of a guy who gets into a bar fight and literally kills the other guy like beats him to death and i wow it was two weeks ago and i i'm still literally like i still think about it and it gives me the chills and i deleted instagram from my phone right after that mm-hmm. and it was incredibly disturbing to watch how that's one video and it's still ingrained in my mind and still makes me feel sad when i think about it how do these people deal with these things on an, a minute by minute by minute basis do they do they become numb to it eventually or is it that they they eventually just burn out how do they get through it Burnout is definitely part of it. Very few of the people that I spoke to for this job did it for more than a year. Um, When I eventually toured the facility in Phoenix, one of the things that the on-site counselors told me was that some people are just better suited to this work than other people. I still don't know if I really believe that because I would talk to so many people who thought that they were good at this work and then they would have the experience that you did where they saw one video that they just couldn't get out of their mind and every time they closed their eyes, they would see it. Um, And I think it's very hard to understand, by the way, when you take this job, what that video is going to be. You know, like we're we're not really set up to predict what is the video that is going to traumatize us. Um, And yet and yet these folks find themselves in in that position um, regularly. you know, I mentioned that there are counselors on site. Um, that is the main way that that Facebook and its contractors try to address the mental health needs of the people who are doing this work. You're, you know, you can get up and go see them um, at any time. Although, you know, that could count against your your wellness time or or one of your other breaks that you might take. Um, and I will say that most of the employees I spoke with uh, had positive things to report about the counselors. They they felt like they were good people and and trying to help. Um, but at the same time, they felt like what the counselors were doing wasn't really sufficient to sort of make up for the the other working conditions or the low pay. Do you get the impression that, you know, you reported the story and Facebook, of course, responded to it with their bullshit ways that they respond to everything. But do you get the impression that someone like Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg or the whoever runs the departments there, that they question the... Uh, the the fact that they have a product that these things are being shared and posted on and and that people are forced to get paid $28,000 a year to to sit and watch these things so i think it's uh, there's a there's a couple of different questions in there i mean one i think they do sort of accept that because they're at the scale that they are at now there is going to be a lot of bad stuff on the platform and it's their job to hire janitors to clean it up, right? You can't have 2 billion people on the platform without there being some bad actors. And I think that they accept that as part of the the cost of doing business. Um, 
I think there's a second question in there, though, which is how should we value the labor of the work? Um, I'm sorry, how should we value the, the labor of the employees that are doing this work? And what kind of conditions might they labor in? You know, Facebook did not invent this model that I describe. Um, this is essentially a call center model, which tech companies began using in the 1980s, if not before. Um, it's also used by Google and therefore YouTube uh, and Twitter. And until now, they've sort of been able to get away with it. I think we, you know we should also say these platforms used to be a lot smaller, and we're probably seeing a lot less of this content. It might have been more rare for for an employee to see something as disturbing as as the folks see now. But I think this job has changed a lot. One of the things that I try to get at in the story is because so much global speech now flows through platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. These folks are are helping to set the terms of public debate on matters of great importance, right? Um, when you think about discussions around immigration and how quickly those discussions can turn racist, it is up to a group of folks being paid $15 an hour to decide what is valid political speech and what is going to be purged from the platform. And one of the things that I have come to believe is that while we treat this labor as if it's very low skilled, in reality, it's very high skilled labor. In order to really understand the nuances of the policies and apply them correctly almost every single time, because otherwise you'll get fired, you have to be very, very good. And because the job is so important and because it requires such high skill, I think you can afford to pay these people at least double what they're making, and you can give them working conditions that more closely resemble those of any other Facebook employee, starting with the fact that they don't have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. Did and So you actually went and visited this, this uh, facility. Uh, did Facebook seem like they were open to anything like that? Or have they after, the, after you've written the story? I mean, it's, you've got Mark Zuckerberg, who's one of the richest people in the world. You have Facebook making, what, a couple of billion dollars in profit a quarter. You have, you know, so much wealth, you know, flowing through this company. Not just Facebook. I mean, Google's, this is the famous story of Google paying an, one engineer $100 million uh, to, to hire him. It, it, is there any kind of do you think there's any movement in these companies and Facebook specifically where they actually will change the way they do this and, and pay people a proper wage and allow them to go to the bathroom without having to click a browser? So one of my frustrations with this story was that I felt like I didn't really get to speak with any of the decision makers. I didn't get to speak with the people who were designing these systems and putting them into place. Instead, I spoke with the people whose job it is to administer these systems and keep making sure that there are enough cogs in the machine to, to keep it spinning. Um, I don't think that there is currently a move inside any of these companies to increase worker pay or improve their working conditions. Um, we've heard a couple of reports about some internal posts inside Facebook about employees you know, questioning uh, some of those things, but it doesn't seem to have really coalesced into a movement. Um, but that's where I think we have a great opportunity as journalists, because I think if we just keep telling these stories, and, and I should say there's been a lot of other really great work done um, about content moderation by both journalists and academics, if we just keep telling that story, I think we will put pressure on these companies because I think that ultimately there is really no good logical reason to pay these people as little as we're paying them. And I think that's just going to become clearer in time. You're listening to Inside the Hive. 
with Nick Bilton. So Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETF, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge you $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level whatsoever. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. It is stunningly beautiful to look at and even easier to use than you can imagine. It's easy to understand charts and market data, and you can place a trade with just four single taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as the 100 most popular, lots of different organization ways to look at it. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving away to listeners of Inside the Hive a free stock like an Apple stock, a Ford stock, or a Sprint stock to help you build your portfolio. You can sign up today at Bilton.Robinhood.com. Once again, B-I-L-T-O-N.Robinhood.com. You're going to get a free stock to help start and build your portfolio. Go to Bilton.Robinhood.com. As you begin planning your next trip, take a look at Cambria Hotels. With more than 50 locations in top cities across the United States, there's a hotel wherever you're headed for either business or pleasure. From Los Angeles to New York City, you'll find a Cambria Hotel with approachable indulgences that make travel better and help you be your best. Whether you want a prepackaged grab-and-go option or you want to explore the locally-inspired menu with a perfectly paired local craft beer, or if you want to take in the outdoors on a breathtaking rooftop, or simply relax while listening to your favorite podcast or music in your spa-inspired bathroom with Bluetooth mirrors, Cambria is thoughtfully designed with you, the modern traveler, in mind. When you're ready to get back on the road, Cambria is ready to welcome you, putting you first with enhanced cleanliness practices and social distancing, and exclusive features like Cambria's contactless concierge service, where you can request anything you need from extra towels to food at the bar or checkout, all from your smartphone. Plus, each hotel offers a marketplace with drinks, snacks, and prepackaged grab-and-go options. See how little indulgences can make a big difference when you book your next stay at choicehotels.com slash Cambria. Do you think that, is this the, the kind of thing that we didn't envision in the, I mean, there was a lot of things we didn't envision in <laughs> yeah. social networks, right? Uh, uh, Russia, Donald Trump being being a, among them. But it's interesting. Like I've spoken to people at Twitter and and I say to them, hey, why don't you guys do something about um, all the nasty shit that's on there? And their response is a consistent response. It's the company response, which is, uh, we don't think that it's Twitter's fault that people are mean to each other. We think that Twitter is just a reflection of society. Yeah. I am going to say bullshit on that in, in more emphatically than I could ever say bullshit on anything in the respect of the fact that that there is no way to actually portray empathy on Twitter. So how are you going to tell me that it's a reflection of society? Do you think that there is a world where um, where people actually uh, 
build some sort of empathy into these things to avoid this from happening? Or is this just kind of the utopia dystopia of the world that we're going to live in online? Well, I think that's a really um, good question. And it would be a fertile area for product designers and user experience people to play around with. Twitter says that it is experimenting uh, around some of those ideas that you just laid out. And of course, we'll see if they ever ship uh, at, at Twitter in particular. They, they rarely do. Um, but, you know, I think there's a, a kind of intermediate no, step. Nothing ships at Twitter. I mean, <laughs> yeah. on, let's be real. It's like the only thing that ships is, is Jack Dorsey as he gets on a plane to go on a silent retreat. Like, <laughs> Yeah, Twitter has a, a shipping product problem. Yes. Um, but it does leave an opportunity, you know, for other, other social networks. And I do think there is this thing that social networks can do in the meantime, which gets at this idea that it is sometimes called freedom of speech versus freedom of reach, right? So if you are an American and you basically believe in the First Amendment and you think that we should enable the maximum amount of speech, um, I think you're really suspicious of some of these anti-fake news laws that we've seen passed in other countries that really just turn out to be flimsy pretexts to crack down on dissent. Um, I personally don't want to you know, live in a world where uh, like three companies decide what are the correct political opinions and, and only those can be expressed. But at the same time, these companies are unwittingly providing this amazing viral growth machinery to some of the worst people in the world. And that's where I think they can step in and say, you know what, we will let you say what you want to say, but we're no longer going to uh, promote you as like a channel to subscribe to or a page to follow or a group to join. Um, we are maybe going to uh, take away your like your ability to be retweeted or reshared. Um, and, and I think if you start doing that, you can enable people to have free speech, but you stop driving other people toward really problematic content. And Pinterest actually did this recently yeah. in a way that I think is brilliant. Um, and we, we could talk about that if you want. Yeah, no, I, I, I was going to bring up interest is, is, you know, one of the things that's so infuriating about like people like Zuckerberg and, and Dorsey and, and Sandberg and so on is that they, they say, oh, there's no solution to the problem. But Pinterest has this has a solution. Tell, tell us about it. So Pinterest um, has the same problems that any of these other platforms do, right? People will just post bad stuff on there. And one of the bad things that people were posting on there were pins uh, related to the anti-vax movement, right? The idea that you shouldn't vaccinate your children because of a bunch of uh, you know nonsense and lies and, and pseudoscience uh, trying to scare people about getting vaccines. And so what Pinterest said was, okay, from now on, you can you can pin an anti-vax pin to your own page, right? If you see something and you want to store that using Pinterest, we're going to let you do that, which again kind of goes to that freedom of speech. But we're going to take away your freedom of reach. We're not going to let anybody uh, like repin that content. We're not going to uh, surface it in search results. Uh, we're going to kind of use this brute ham-fisted method of preventing other people from finding it. We're not going to drive our other users to your anti-vax content. And by doing that, they prevent those groups from essentially hijacking Pinterest to gain new adherents. Uh, because remember, if these people are successful in, in creating an army of believers, then all of a sudden we have an even bigger public health crisis than we already do. So, you know, Pinterest has a good public health reason to do this. And it's amazing that it took... Um, 
um, you know, one of the smallest companies uh, of all the social networks to, to realize this before the biggest ones. But it goes back to the point that, that you know, Sheryl Sandberg has always said, we're not a media company, which is total nonsense. Of course, you're a media company, especially given the fact that you have moderators moderating content like that makes you the biggest media company there is. But doesn't it go back to the fact that at the end of the day, and this is my opinion, and I'm curious what yours is, that people like Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg just don't care. It's like they if they cared, you know, they've got some of the smartest people on the planet working for them. If they really cared about these issues, they would solve them in a week. But it doesn't seem like they do care, right? Um, so, I, I mean, I disagree with you, Nick. I, I think they do care. Oh, also, nice. like, I, okay, I try- good. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, for starters, like, I try not to project myself into the minds of the people that I write about because it's just too hard. Like, it's, it's just, it's impossible for me to know, you know, what Mark Zuckerberg is thinking about. Um, it certainly seems like Facebook is a company that tends to be reactive to public pressure rather than proactive about thinking through some of these questions in advance, right? Um, like, it, it took a, a kind of fresh round of discussion about Pinterest and anti-vax stuff to get Facebook to finally take some steps to stop recommending anti-vax groups to new moms, uh, which is something that, that Facebook has been doing for years. I, I tend to see the problem a different way, which is as a Frankenstein's monster problem. Um, they have tried their very hardest for more than a decade to grow this platform as big as they can, right? Growth is the only ideology that Facebook knows. And the bigger you grow, the more problems you create. And they have been bad, I would say, at anticipating what those problems are. Um, I'm not sure, by the way, that I would have done a better job anticipating what those problems would be. Um, But now we know they have all of these externalities, these unintended consequences, and they're trying to clean up those messes as fast as they can. But every time they clean up one mess, another one breaks out. At this point, the platform is beyond their control. They can tweak it, but they cannot manage the collective behavior of billions of people. And so I tend to see the problem that way versus like they don't care. It's sort of like it doesn't matter if they care or not because the thing is already kind of spun out of control. All right, we're going to have to disagree on this because I believe that you're a good human being and if you were to have built Facebook even with investor money and wanting to grow it as big and quick as that you as you as, as Mark Zuckerberg wanted to that you would have not done things like uh like the company has done and it's time and time again that you see them not only not be forthright with the things that they're doing. And look, you saw that happen in your story uh, right. uh, when you went to visit this place. Um, uh, but that they are not forthright and that, that they that they do very little, it appears, to actually try to mitigate these things from happening. I think that, you know, and this for me is one of the most terrifying things about the future of Silicon Valley, where you have driverless cars and, you know, supersonic drones and God knows what robots walking the street and things like that that you're going to have in the future. Are we only going to think about the, the good side of it or are we going to kind of be a little bit more careful and try to understand how it can be used against us? Right. Um, because the, the outcome is way, way scarier than... Uh, 
um, than the kind of bad things that we see on on Facebook today. Yeah, and I mean that that point that you raise, like that has traditionally been a role of the government to ask those questions, right, and to make yeah. sure that companies are thinking about the unintended consequences and to hold them responsible when they don't. And there's been this other phenomenon playing out over the past decade, which is a basically near total failure of the regulatory state when it comes to uh, policing the behavior of these platforms, right? They never get anything more than a slap on the wrist, right? It's a, it's a fine they can pay with a few hours of profits. They don't really have to make any meaningful changes to the platform. If they do, they tend to be changes that wind up privileging the incumbent because it just makes it that much harder for another company to start up in that space. And so like all of these big tech companies have essentially gotten a free ride from the Federal Trade Commission. And that's one reason why I think that we should be putting just as much pressure on the government as we're putting on the companies, right? Because this is the role that we want our government to play for us. To, I 1000% agree. And I think that the, the problem is, I you know, we, and this is this has been a, a business strategy for a lot of these companies from Elon Musk to Zuckerberg, you name it, where they are like, okay, we understand that the government uh, moves at a probably 10 years behind us when it comes to technology. Let's let's move fast and break things. And then at the end of the day, uh, when they realize we've broken it, uh, they'll regulate us, but we'll, all, we'll already be the biggest people there. And I think right. that, you know, uh, what's so exciting about like someone like AOC uh, in Congress now um, and folks like her is that they do have an understanding of how these things work and hopefully can have an impact and change it. So I, I have one last question for you before we let you go. And you've met these moderators, you've covered Facebook for just as long as I have, you um, and all these companies. If if I were to say, okay, you are in charge for a day, what is it that you would do to change the way these social networks work, um, would you would you say you can't post certain things like this? Would you take the Pinterest approach? Would you pay these people as much as Facebook engineers? What would be the thing that you would do that would you think that you think would actually um, make this fair and better and um, you know, for everyone. So two, I mean, there's like, there's a million things that I would, I would do, but I would sort of limit it to two that I think are a really practical starting points. So the first thing I would do is I would just double the salary of all these folks around the world. Um, this won't make things just necessarily right. Like we know that in India, there are people doing this work for the equivalent of $6 a day. But I think that if uh, Facebook or another platform came out and said, you know what, we're doubling the salaries of all of our moderators as a starting point, it would be a really uh, important signal about how they value the work and about how they sort of recognize um, the uh, just essential nature of this work to keeping their platforms profitable. So pay them more money. It's not a panacea, but I think it's a really great starting point. I think it would buy these companies a lot of goodwill and it would change the lives uh, of of more than 15,000 people at Facebook alone around the world who are doing this work. The second thing that I would say is these companies need to reconsider the non-disclosure agreements that they make their contractors sign. Because the way these NDAs work now, these contractors uh, feel like they can't even discuss the working conditions at these jobs even after they leave the platforms. Um, I should say there are good reasons why these folks have to sign NDAs. Um, It protects the privacy of Facebook users whose content they're moderating. And it protects the physical safety of the moderators, right? Because if everybody knew who they were, they might confront them if they got mad at Facebook for some reason. 
But we need to make sure that these workers who are doing maybe the hardest work at Facebook, at YouTube, at Twitter, we need to give them an avenue to say, hey, I can't go to the bathroom at my job. Um, Or, hey, I have PTSD now because I did this job for three weeks, right? We need to allow that kind of discussion because this is a problem that only sunlight is going to fix. Well, Casey, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, where can people subscribe to your fantastic newsletter? Uh, so that is at theverge.com slash interface. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's a fascinating story, and, um, and this has been a great conversation. Thank ah, you. My pleasure, Nick. Anytime. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So here's a little scary fact for you. Global air pollution is worsening, and it is getting worse by the day. More than 80% of people living in urban areas that are monitored by air pollution are exposed to qualities that fall well below the WHO recommendations. And what's worse is that indoor air can be up to five times worse than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Most of us spend 90% of our time indoor. So when you get an air filter and an air purification system, you're probably getting HEPA filters. And it's actually a technology that dates back to World War II. That's from the 1940s. In other words, it's not exactly working. But there is a technology that does work, and it's called molecule It's a complete reinvention of the air purifier, not just an improvement of existing outdated technologies. It was developed by a scientist whose son suffered from asthma, and who was frustrated by the fact that the HEPA air filters did not relieve his conditions. So as a result, you have this incredible technology uh, that is able to destroy indoor air pollutants at a molecular level, completely removing them from the air so that you can breathe. Molecule uses this photoelectromechanical oxidization, it's called PICO, nanotechnology that eliminates allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. Uh, It replaces a 50-year-old antiquated technology. Uh, Molecule introduces a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. One customer actually said that for the first time in 15 years, she was able to breathe once she got a a molecule. Uh, Molecule's technology has been personally effective uh, and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people. Molecule has already helped allergy and asthma sufferers around the country better cope with conditions and significantly reduce their uh, symptoms. And they are offering us a very special offer today. For $75 off your first order, all you need to do is visit Molecule.com and at the at checkout enter the code HIVE. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. Enter the code HIVE. You get $75 off your first order. Once again, that's Molecule with a K-M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. Uh, and enter the code HIVE. You will love it. It's amazing. It's beautiful. uh, And it will help you actually be able to breathe. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. It's time for my second very special guest, Roger McNamee. If you stick through this whole conversation, you will hear us get into a few little arguments because we obviously have different viewpoints on the company uh, and Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg and so on. So this is a good one. Make sure you listen all the way through. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. I have a, I always say this every week, but I do have a very special guest this week. Roger, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Roger McNamee, and I've 
been a technology investor since 1982. 1982, when I was, how old was I? Eight years old? So, in 1982, Silicon Valley was still at the very end of the Apollo period with the guys with the short sleeve white shirts and a tie and And the heavy metal glass. Pocket protectors? Pocket protector and the sort of heavy glass. So, just think Apollo 13. There's, (laughs) I mean, the big things were, were the space shuttle, which was brand new. And, uh, you know, there was like defense electronics and all sorts of stuff. And the PC industry, you know, IBM had shipped the PC, but it wasn't an industry yet. It was still, you know, a few oddball people doing things. And, you know, they hadn't really turned on all the, the energy and jets yet. And so I got to watch the PC industry from its formative days and have been around ever since which means i've i've basically been like zelig or forrest gump i've (laughs) found myself just bizarrely in these really amazing situations time and time again and uh you know most of them very happy and a few of them less so so the reason you're here is not to talk about 1982 in silicon valley with guys with pocket protectors but you have a new book out called zucked uh, which is essentially one of the few, you're one of the few people in Silicon Valley who uh, were actually close to Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook, and so on, who are now sounding the alarm that, oh my God, this is maybe the worst thing that's ever happened well, to the history of the world. So <laughs> the book has the subtitle, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And the thing that everybody should understand is that in this book, I mean, I have to make a confession. I, I spent the last 36 years studying the technology industry, but I was really blind to a whole bunch of things. And this book, I'm essentially the Jimmy Stewart character from Rear Window, or I'm Howard Beale from Network. You know, I'm some combination of those two things. But the Jimmy Stewart character, because I see something in January of 2016 that just doesn't conform to my understanding of what Facebook is about. And I see a series of things, and as an analyst, I'm used to putting together, you know, to making connections among things that might not be obviously related. And essentially, in the book, I tell the journey of discovery that I go through from being completely ignorant to to what I am now. And, And to be clear, what I am now is somebody who's less focused on Facebook than I am on the whole digital data economy and, and well, the uh, issues that are in that. Well, but hold on. So the, the reason that what makes you a, a, a very special guest is because is people come in here all the time and they say, oh, you know, you got to be careful of Facebook and Google and this and that and the other. And I say it. Um, and But you actually were an investor. I was a true believer. No, I still am an investor. You're I still did, an investor. I decided to keep stock because I thought, and again, this is my personal value system at work here. I, I said, I want people to understand that I'm not criticizing these guys because I've sold the stock and I want to trash trash it. I'm really, really concerned about the future of democracy, the future of public health, the future of privacy, and candidly, just the whole interaction of technology and the human race. And I played a role in Facebook, and it wasn't a huge role, but it was important. So wait, so it was the was the investment, um, so listeners understand, was the investment personal, or was it through your so, venture so firm? The, the way this worked out was in, in 2006, I received an email from a, one of the senior executives at Facebook saying, my boss is facing a real crisis in the business and needs to talk to an old hand who can be objective and independent, but also keep a secret. Would you take a meeting with them? The company was two years old. 
They'd already gotten a big pile of funding from Axel Partners, so they didn't need money. This was really about solving a problem. He was 22. I was 50. He comes and meets in my office, and you just have to imagine the scene. Elevation Partners, which is a firm I started with Bono, John Riccatello from Electronic Arts, Fred Anderson uh, from Apple, and a couple other people. We had a one conference room set up as a game room, and it had like massive speakers, and it was totally soundproofed, and it was set up like a living room. So we meet in there, and Mark comes in. He looks just like Mark. He's got the hoodie. I mean, it's the trademark Mark. He's, He's got, got the, the flip-flops. The flip-flops. Yep, the courier bag, the whole nine yards. And before we start, I say, look, dude, once you start talking, you're going to think whatever you told me influences everything I said. So what I'd like to do is take two minutes, tell you what I think as context, and then you can go. And I said, look, if it hasn't already happened, Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook, and everybody you know is going to tell you to take the money. And I said, I believe you've done a couple things at Facebook that are revolutionary and will allow you to become as big and important as as Google is today. Specifically that he had at that time authenticated identity. Remember, they don't even have news feed yet. It's just high school and college students from their high school or college .edu addresses. And that was going to keep the thing safe. It was going to, prov- you know, if, as long as they had authenticated identity, trolls were going to be at a huge disadvantage relative to every network they'd come before. And he gave people real privacy controls in those days. And I said, I think these are game breaking. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this is going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread. It's going to get all the way to a hundred million users, right? I'm, I'm convinced that this amazing thing is going to happen. And I said, look, if you sell the company, whoever buys it's going to kill it. And no matter what they tell you, you're never going to have the perfect idea at the perfect time again. And this is the perfect idea at the perfect time. So I said, I hope that what you'll do is follow your dream. What followed that was the weirdest five minutes in my entire life. We're in this soundproofed room, completely dead. And I've just laid this really heavy thing on the guy. And I'm looking for a reaction, like anything. What I get instead is dead silence. He's thinking about it. You know, at first I'm thinking, wow, he's really thinking about it. That's cool, right? And, you know, I've spent my whole life in the technology entrepreneur world, so I know that technology entrepreneurs are highly focused and really intense and maybe socially awkward. So none of that bothers me. But at the one-minute mark, I'm going, this is really weird. I mean, if you've ever sat with somebody in dead silence in a totally silent (laughs) studio-like environment. It's not comfortable. At two minutes, I'm going, this is really So he's literally just sitting there not saying anything. Well, he's moving, though. He's pantomiming all these thinker poses, right? So chin on hand, right? Forehead on hand. You know, chin on both hands. And he's like looking up. He's looking up in the other direction. But he's literally not making a sound. At the three-minute mark, I am beginning to get really uncomfortable. At four minutes, I think I'm going to scream. And then finally, somewhere in the next minute, he relaxes. And he goes, you're not going to believe this, but everything you just said is why I'm here. It just happened. How did you know? And I go, dude, I don't know anything. I'm an analyst. I know how the Valley works. I know these companies. I know your board members, you know. This is how people do things around here. They just had a $9 million a year, right? So a billion dollars is a huge, huge offer. Yeah. And he's going to have $650 million bucks of it, right? You could totally see the scenario. Jim Breyer is going to say, oh, yeah, I'll back your next company. His parents are going to go, kid, you're 22. You got $650 million bucks. You won the lottery. Call it a day. But I'm sitting there going, do you want to sell the company? And he goes, I don't want to disappoint everybody, 
right? But no, I want to follow my vision. So I didn't talk him out of anything. All I did was help him do what he wanted to do. So back then is, you know, when I, I've spent time with Mark and I get the impression that he is the kind of person that uh, 2.4 billion people are on his platform. He doesn't wake up every morning and say, holy shit, 2.4 billion people are on something that I built. He wakes up every morning and says, why aren't the other few billion That's on right. Here? He looks at it and says, where are the, the then, other 4.7? Right? Yeah, w- back then, is was he the same kind of megalomania-like personality it or no? Didn't, it didn't come across as that to me. What, what came across to me was an exceptionally intense young man who seemed more mature than his age. So my inter- I, there were three years where I was... Um, very close to him, where I went over there at least once a month, every month, and many months I'd be there three or four times. And the, I only dealt with a narrow range of issues. You Basically, once his management team said they wanted to sell the company, he had to change his management team. So I was intimately involved in that process. I helped him deal with the Winklevi. You know, when the, the original... You helped Zuckerberg deal with the Winklevi? Yeah, deal with the PR blow-up. Got it. Because the, there was going to be a big story in a Harvard alumni magazine that the Winklevi had planted, and 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 he he was completely unprepared for it. I got him a you know a, a PR crisis management firm. And so wait, him. so when when Zuckerberg comes to you, he's gotten the billion dollar offer from Yahoo. He's already turned it down, or he hasn't turned it down. He has not turned it down. He's and, still and the reason he's coming to see me is because he's torn by everybody wanting him to take the money, him not wanting to take the money, and not having a way to make it acceptable to the people who wanted to take the money to take to not take it. Got it. And all I said to him was, look. These people signed up for your vision. They're not allowed to tell you to abandon your vision. And it turned out he had a golden vote. So he always had control of the outcome. And all I did was help him understand the best way to articulate the message to the people that they had they, that they signed up for a ride that wasn't over yet. So you end up investing in Facebook? Not yet. No, no. It takes. So the thing is, there is no opportunity. He's just taken a huge pile of money. So it's he doesn't need money. And I didn't do it for that. I did it because... You know, it was one o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, right? I mean, it was the single most interesting thing I could do in that hour was to meet with Mark Zuckerberg. And by the way, it was only half an hour. It was the sh- it was a really short. And meeting. he was not even Mark Zuckerberg by any remote sense of the. No, he was in many ways Mark Zuckerberg, but he was this really cool, really compelling individual, and I was really drawn to him because I thought, you know, the thing is when they had the original notion of that you could apply graph theory to a network and that, that, that a network of people where everybody has exactly one node because you have authenticated identity would be a thing you could scale infinitely. To have that insight at age 20, to then recognize that there were other benefits of authenticated identity besides the efficiency of the network, that it was actually a good thing for people, and that giving people privacy controls would cause them to be comfortable sharing things, that... That set of insights was so brilliant. I mean, I was really drawn to this guy. Was there any point in that? So I went through this thing that you clearly have gone through as you're detailing in your book, where at first I was like, holy shit, this is the greatest thing that's ever going to happen. It's yeah. going to connect people and yeah. society's going to be and amazing. And I'd already been through MySpace and Friendster. Right? I was at Kleiner Perkins when they did Friendster. So I saw that thing just completely blow itself up. But had you seen at this point any negatives come from... The, technology had like 
you know, you were mean, the tech thing, in general. In tech in general, no, that made that's you think, the problem. If you think about the period from '56 when the AT&T consent decree happens and we start the computer industry as a separate thing, all the way to 2004, say. Tech basically was constrained. There were the technology was limited on processing, storage, memory, and bandwidth. You couldn't do much harm, and so basically anything that was harmful got killed before it actually hurt anybody. How is, wait, how is that? I'm curious how. You still got you technology. Were never, you were never. You couldn't solve any problem at a global level. You're always dealing with very narrow. Even Microsoft's Windows couldn't be used in. You know, it, it, you needed a big machine. You couldn't use it in the toilet. You couldn't use it when you were standing up, right? Everything, technology wasn't pervasive. And as a consequence, the things that failed, failed quickly and without doing much damage. Hmm. And on balance, the Steve Jobs notion that technology was an empowering tool, a bicycle for the mind, was the prevailing sentiment all the way up to that time. And it wasn't until the PayPal mafia came in with, with again, a, another genius insight, which was that the internet was going to pivot from a web of pages to a web of people, you know, the 2002-2003 insight of Web 2.0, that, you know, that you... That happened to come literally just as all of the limitations on processing power, memory, storage, and eventually bandwidth went away. So between 2003 and 2010, you went from having some constraints to having literally none, even in wireless. And the result of that was that suddenly you could go for infinite scale. And the PayPal Mafia's genius move was not only that they saw Web 2.0, but they recognized that hyperscaling as a concept could be implemented. And they saw this way before anybody else. And so the combination of those two things, you know, creates this monster industry that happens to have, because of the people who financed it, this philosophy of extreme libertarianism that was sort of Ayn Randian in the sense of not feeling any sense of obligation or responsibility for the consequences of your actions. And it, that thing, when paired to what Google and Facebook and LinkedIn and others were doing, essentially said, we can disrupt Without, and it's not our fault and what happens. It's not our fault. It's essentially like it's the fault of the people who didn't prepare for the disruption. And so that starts in motion, this thing. And the problem that I didn't see, I didn't read the Google patent in 2003 when they describe the what is what Shoshana Zuboff now refers to as behavioral surplus and the ability to essentially use artificial intelligence against seemingly random data sets to extract value that doesn't benefit the people whose data you get, but creates enormous economic value for face for Google. And, you know, by failing to see that thing at that time, I was missing something that would essentially cause me to be blind right until 2016. Do you believe that the people who, you know, we all can look back now in hindsight and say, okay, the folks who started this, they had this libertarian philosophy uh, where they weren't thinking about the consequences. It was, a, it was move fast and break things. And if things break, it's your fault, not mine. Well, and, and, uh, and we'll fix it, right? They, they had this notion that we well, move was fast, the break things, that we do that thing again, right? Yeah, so it, were they evil in their disregard, or was it just that they no, didn't believe anything I, bad was going to happen? I don't believe that they were evil at all. I, in fact, think they were idealistic. The way I look at it is they inherited, they had this like, Chinese menu of philosophies available to them, right? And one of the core ones, which worked really well in the era of constraints, was, hey— 
You get a product to, so to the point where it works, you can turn it on. Then you ship it and you let the customers sort out the bugs and the flaws in the thing, right? And you'd have a really tight improvement process and all that would work fine. And if you were making like, you know, a PC video game or you're making a spreadsheet, that was all fine. And it didn't break down until you started to have networks with 2 billion people on it. It didn't break down until you started to collect all the world's information. It didn't break down until you had YouTube. And so essentially... To me, the thing about these guys was they were deeply idealistic about, in Google's case, collecting all the world's information, in Facebook's case, connecting all the world's people, where the problem came in, where, you know, there was always libertarianism in Silicon Valley, right? I mean, the notion that the internet should not have identity built in it was a, a form of libertarianism. The one that the, the, uh, that the PayPal mafia brought was a more aggressive form of it. And in my opinion, it wasn't harmful per se. It, the issue was that it essentially gave permission to companies to say, we're really not responsible for anything that happens on our platforms, right? They had Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that gave them a, a safe harbor, and they created this very convenient philosophical center that, you know, we can move fast, we can break things, and there's no harm done, and they went a really long way. I mean, to me, one of the tributes is how long they went before the bad things started to show up. But the bad things were—they were always happening. They were just happening on a much smaller scale. I'm not disputing that, and they but were happening on a small enough scale that, at least to me, and maybe this was convenient because you know I was You're making money. <laughs> well, to be clear, again, that starts a little bit later. But, but look. If money were the most important thing to me, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. No, right? I, 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 we'll, get to, we'll get to the money in a little bit. The, the question I do have is you and I can sit here and everyone is now sitting here talking about the fact that these, pro, these companies and the people that run them, they created things that are now breaking society in Correct. many respects. Do they denied, realize that? Or? I don't think so. And I think that they are so deeply steeped in this notion of exceptionalism for themselves the uh, in these visions of how um, how important their mission is that there really isn't any room for contemplation of the soul or you know reviewing your actions and to me the proof point of this is if you see in Facebook's case what happened in Myanmar Right? The fact that there haven't been any employees inside the company who've protested against having the company labeled by the United Nations as enabling a classic ethnic cleansing, you know, which is a verbatim quote from the UN, 9,000 people dead, 42,000 people missing and presumed dead. I mean, those are staggeringly large numbers and largely due to a business model that was... Um, I think you could charitably call it careless, right? Because, you know, they start this whole thing without more than one or two Burmese speakers, and they have nobody's a, nobody who's an expert in the culture is involved in this. They aren't really thinking through at all how disruptive it is to take a, a limited version of Facebook into a country that has no media, no prior telecom experience, therefore no concept of hate speech, no concept of, of disinformation. And when you drop this whole thing in there and then authority figures basically broadcast that this minority are something to be exterminated, 
I mean, of course the people are going to believe that. Okay, if I worked for a company, if, if, if Vanity Fair wrote, put on the cover of the magazine something like that, I would be like, all right, I'm out. I don't no. want anything to do with this. Amen. Right. But, I get that. But w- there are tens of thousands of people that work at Facebook. Don't, isn't one of them being like, hey, this well, that, is pretty that's what fucked. I Hang on. D- dude. So we're on the same page. <laughs> but no, I'm asking I'm you, like, I'm completely are there, confused. Are, are, have you spoke? I mean, I know you, I, I know the I last ha- time you I spoke to. Met, I haven't met anyone yet who falls into that. What, what I do know is that when resources in tech were scarce, the average age of an entrepreneur was like 40 because experience really mattered. What was special about the moment that Facebook started, the moment that uh, LinkedIn started and when Google really took off was that without constraints, you no longer needed experience. So Mark could hire an entire company in the early days from his dorm room at Harvard. And they were brilliant, but they were inexperienced. And there was no, you know, the, the, the experiences that everybody had were beautiful for figuring out the math problem of the network and doing all the amazing things they did to enable the company. But they weren't designed to be deeply thoughtful in a philosophical sense about potential downsides. And then, you know, when new people came in, people like Cheryl came in, their focus was also not on that. So opportunities were missed. And where was the board of directors in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I look at this and go, hang on, if a board of directors has, if you want to reduce the function to two things, one of them is hiring and firing the CEO, but the other one is making sure the CEO is paying attention when something happens that's outside the CEO's experience, right? That is clearly one of the mandates of a board of directors, and that has not happened at Facebook, has not happened at Google. And in my mind, that is deeply, deeply troubling. And, you know, okay, I, so, I can't so explain he, the issues of the people. I can, I, I can well, tell you what you do know I can give the you people. I mean, you yeah. do know Mark, you do know Cheryl. Do, do you think that when they look at the the what has happened with the election, what happened in Myanmar, what happened with Brexit, you know, all these things that are taking place on their platform, do you think that they think, oh, well, look at all the great things, and so these things are going to happen, on the, and there's nothing we can do about them? Or do you think that they just don't see it as their responsibility? I, I'm not sure. Okay. Got it. So, the, the best clues that I write about in the book are when Andrew Bosworth puts out the memo after yep. a man is killed on Facebook Live, right? So they introduced this new live streaming video product, and within days, some people kill a guy filming it and broadcasting it live. And he writes a memo, I think an all-hands memo. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who went, but I think it was all-hands. And it basically says, you know what? Things like this are going to happen. It's just a cost of us going for our growth mission. And it, it, it the, he says essentially I'm, we connect people and things happen when you connect people and if someone dies that's what happens. Exactly. And and I look at that and when you read the memo from today it comes across as very cold-blooded and I think that's not how he wrote it, right? I so here's the thing. It I'm trying to get people to look at now and to look at the future and prepare. Mm-hmm. So I'm spending way less time than you wish I were 
<laughs> trying to psychoanalyze the people. No, I'm not, it's not that I'm trying no, to psychoanalyze people, but the only way you can the only way you can change the future is by understanding who your opponent is. And I what I have never been able to understand is Right. And I'm struggling with the same problem, right? Because Mark and Cheryl haven't talked to me since I sent the memo to them on October thirtieth of twenty sixteen. So tell so the memo is you send a memo to them so, saying So basically what happens, I see a series of things of of course of twenty sixteen. I'm Jimmy Stewart, I'm I see something that doesn't fit my preconceived notion of this nirvana called Facebook. And, you know, first it's a it's things around the Democratic primary, then it's Black Lives Matter, then it's uh, the UK referendum on Brexit. It's essentially fake news you're seeing. No, no. And the last one is Facebook advertising tools being used in violation of Fair Housing Act. It's actually in all these cases, it is the Facebook business model and algorithms being used by bad actors. So it's basically taking tools created for a very constructive advertising model, but being available to anybody. So a bad actor can use those exact same tools the way an advertiser were to pr- would, but to produce a bad outcome for innocent people. And so this, what I write is an op-ed for Recode, the, the, the tech blog. And instead of publishing it, I send it to Mark and Cheryl. And it basically, it's in the book and it's, you know, it's, it's an op-ed, so it's it's more emotional than I wish I had sent to them. But <laughs> it it basically goes, guys. I think there's a, a su- systemic issue here with the business, and and I'm thinking that they're a victim, right? That these things are that they haven't realized because I can also imagine how they would look at this and just assume that no one's going to use the product differently than they do, mm. right? And so. They don't see this coming. I mean, I I look at 2016 and go, man, a lot of things went wrong, and yet somebody should have seen it, and they probably did see it, and but for whatever reason they didn't react to it. I'm sitting there going, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I can sort of see that. When I go to them, I'm not the only person raising those issues. You know, President Obama talks to Mark a few weeks after that. Um, Alex Stamos, their security head, does a intensive look in December and comes out with a report that gets watered down. By December 2016, they clearly know there's been problems on the election. What I have no concept of at that time is that, oh my God, there are also public health issues. There are, uh, you know, the kind of things that go on on YouTube with little kids, the kind of things that go on on Instagram with bullying of preteens and teens, uh, the kind of things that go on with filter bubbles with adults. I'm, I'm like, I just haven't put that part together. I haven't put together at all the privacy issues that come out with Cambridge Analytica. So in the book, I'm basically starting from the election thing. And I spend three months begging them after the election to do what Johnson & Johnson did after the Tylenol poisoning, which is to say- Pull everything. And protect the people who are using your product. And I'm saying you can convert a disaster into a win. You're in a trust business. There is no law that's going to protect you from a loss of trust. And uh, I spent three months. And what's so weird is all of that advice was exactly the kind of advice that they were so open to in 2006, 7, and 8, right? It's exactly how my relationship with Mark began. The problem was, for whatever reason, it was no longer something that they were prepared to to accept from me. I was the wrong messenger. And so I go looking for you know a colleague. I find Tristan Harris, who's come out of Google, who's just been on 60 Minutes talking about his thing he calls brain hacking. And brain hacking is this notion that 
you know, there's always been persuasive technology in the world, but when you have a smartphone, you have the ability to create habits that become addictions and you use things like notifications and likes and things like that to appeal to people's need for rewards. And then you have uh, appeals to fear and uh, outrage because those scare people and they want to share their fear with people. And so that causes lots of activity on the I think, and basically what happens is some percentage of those people wind up becoming addicted, you know? And I always ask people, I say, dude, when do you check your phone in the morning, right? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? Because for everybody I've ever met, it's either before or while. I mean, nobody waits any longer than that. And it's like, we're all there to one degree or another. We've all been sucked into this thing. And his basic point was that once people are addicted, the things that they believe can be manipulated from the outside. And the Facebook advertising tools essentially enabled that. And that is what I had seen in 2016. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I'm about to tell you what I had for dinner this week, and it was delicious. I had a California Power Bowl. I had an unstuffed mole enchiladas, and I had the most incredible cherry barbecue tofu. And it was all thanks to Green Chef. Now, Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company with meal plans that include everything from paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, Mediterranean, heart smart, lean and clean, keto, gluten-free, and omnivore. I, of course, went with the vegan one this week just to try it. It was so fantastic. Green Chef lets you choose from a wide array of easy-to-follow lifestyles with select organic ingredients. It's quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, photos, guides, you name it. Everything is hand-picked and delivered right to your front door. Ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepared. Uh, You can switch up your meal plans whenever you want with Green Chef. You can pick from all these incredible, high-quality, clean ingredients. It really is uh, something else. Recipes include pre-made measured sauces, dressing, spices, all so you get these incredible, incredible flavors. We're going to offer you a special, a special, special, special Green Chef discount this week. Uh, we're very excited about this. Uh, for $50 off your first box of Green Chef, all you need to do is go to greenchef.us slash hive. That's G-R-E-E-N-C-H-E-F.us slash hive. You know how to spell hive. Um, Check it out. Amazing recipes. So simple to make. uh, Delicious. And um, you will love it. Once again, uh, greenchef.us slash hive. So they decide not to do anything about this. In fact, they decide to go the complete opposite way. And Mark says, this is crazy nonsense crazy it didn't happen cheryl kind of crawls under a rock and decides not to come out and do her pr tour for a little bit and then eventually does uh well basically in 2017 the thing that's really weird is they because of the stamos thing they know they've got a problem they hired the pollster yep tavis mcginn who's going to pull and make sure that the brand of mark and cheryl is okay while all this noise is going on and you know we wind up going to Washington. We meet Senator Mark Warner. We give him these hypotheses. Tristan gives him the idea that, yeah, you got to get Mark in front of a hearing and testify about why this is possible and how to prevent it from happening in the future. And we, these hypotheses all get validated. Suddenly, the people in Washington think, all we've done is apply Occam's razor to publicly available information, right? We come up with the simplest explanation for, you know, it was simple. You looked at things like the the California secession movement. We knew that that guy was part Russian and he did it from Russia. And, you know, 
did that mean that the Texas secession movement was also Russian-backed? And if they were back in that, maybe they were doing some of this pro and anti-Black Lives Matter stuff that we'd seen. Mm-hmm. And maybe they were doing some other stuff. And then we hypothesize that because the California thing starts in 2014, that they're doing a campaign of basically undermining people's perception of democracy, and they start no later than May of 2014. Maybe they start as early as March of 2013 when Facebook makes lookalike audiences available as an advertising product, that they used Facebook groups as the primary mechanism. I hypothesized that the Bernie Sanders things that I'd seen in January and February of 2016 were, in fact, maybe a Russian plant. Anyway, essentially all but one of these things is validated in the press within 30 days of when I meet with Warner. And the result of which is we get invited back and we get asked to train the House Intelligence Committee to, about what Facebook and Twitter are all about. How does it work? And we also are asked to provide questions for the other committees that they can ask. And so we wind up getting sucked into the Washington thing. And we're noodling away. They have very good hearings. We get lots of props. We think we're done because we, you know, our whole goal was to raise awareness and now awareness is raised, so we're out of here. And Congressman Adam Schiff takes me aside and says, you're not going anywhere. I go, what do you mean? He goes, dude, how is this thing going to move forward if you and Tristan don't keep doing it? And Renee DiResta, who was with us, and we go, well, what do you want us to do? He said, well, go to the press. Why doesn't Schiff and Warner and those guys say, you know what, we are going to do everything we can because we can see that Cheryl and Mark and those people are not going to change their ways. We're going to do everything we can to, to regulate on. them, to Hang actually on. push they it did. through. But remember what Congress was like. The reason why it was so lucky that we met Warner, that he was the first person I met in Washington, D.C., is because he was on the Senate Intelligence Committee, the only one where the Democrats and Republicans actually talked to each other. On Schiff's committee, they couldn't even talk to each other. And remember, these committees were the intelligence committees. Their job was oversight of agencies, not oversight of social networks. The incredible thing was that they went outside their mandate to do those hearings because no one else could do it. So they were, they were literally, they were totally on it, but we had all the structural impediments of a divided Congress that did, 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 were there, when you met with them or when you spoke to Schiff and those guys, did you get the impression that, look, it's very clear that the Republicans are willing to do anything they can to keep power, including keep Trump in office, uh, even though a large majority of them totally disagree with him and think he's a psychopath. Um, did you get the impression that anyone on the Republican side cared about the fact that Russia had given them a Republican president? Well, I, I can't speak to that, but I can speak to the to the fact that by the end of 2017, I had begun to meet with Republicans who wanted to do something about the power of Internet platforms. Hmm. So keep in mind, once I meet Tristan, all of a sudden the public health stuff is in on the game. The notion of the damage being done to little kids on YouTube Kids with inappropriate content, the damage being done from having every kid in a classroom have a screen in front of them, which distracts them, right? They should be in a classroom, you know, unless it's a special needs kid, there should be no screen at all, and they should be totally focused on the teacher and on their classmates. They should be learning to concentrate, learning to socialize, right? That we'd basically been running this massive experiment on kids that didn't work, and these guys were core parts of it. The whole issues of Instagram with, with teenagers and bullying, the, you know, the issues of filter bubbles. So we were, we'd already moved way beyond. There was no way and no point in trying to relitigate 2016 from our point of view. We were really trying to get at the bigger issues. And, the, um, and so the antitrust opportunity 
arises not later than January of 2018. And uh, initially it was Senator Orrin Hatch, but there were other people in the Republican ecosystem who picked this up very, very early on. And the dysfunction in the House and the Senate was an obstacle not just to the Democrats. It was an obstacle to everything, okay? And there were people who were sympathetic on both sides from very early on. And, and so the way I looked at this was that this was an issue of right versus wrong, not right versus left. And it was really important to me, you know, to put personal politics aside and try to see if I couldn't find people who could uh, relate to this thing. And uh, because once I met Tristan, I realized the Wait, election is a symptom. It's not the problem. Do you think that there's a world in which uh, Facebook is actually regulated? Oh, definitely. When? How? Who? Well, it's already being regulated in Europe, and 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 we cannot understate how important you know what I mean. The, so the, does the does the actions taken in Europe, and we saw a report this week about where they're literally saying essentially that Zuck and Cheryl and the senior management team at Facebook they called them gangsters. They say gangsters. that digital gangsters. Well, that I think the you know that that report is not. It doesn't have the force of law behind it yet. It could lead to legal action. The Global Data Protection Regulation, which is an EU privacy law, is a really important step that has very imperfect enforcement. So it's been very easy for Facebook and Google to dance, to basically avoid the spirit of the law while complying with the letter of it. But the German law that was just passed, which restricts what Facebook can do on profiling, that has serious teeth on it. And the uh, EU law that is potentially changing how copyright law works, I mean, that's profound to YouTube. And so European regulation has some has increasing teeth in it. The California privacy law in the United States, which is modeled on the global data protection regulation, again, the enforcement is grossly underway, but we're going in the right direction. Um, you know, we're identifying paths to use antitrust to create, the to basically end the ability of monopolies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google from blocking competing startups from getting going. And so creating that space, again, these things are not going to happen overnight. But in my mind, the thing that can happen overnight very, very quickly is we can have a debate on things that are the root problems. These guys are taking advantage of a wild west that predates them and predates the availability of artificial intelligence that can find signal from seemingly disparate noise. And I, there's a question we need to ask. There are things that we've allowed to happen because they didn't seem like a big deal, but now are. Like, for example, why is it legal for credit card processors and banks to sell financial data? I don't know. That's a good question, though, right? And why is it legal for cellular companies to sell geolocation data in any form, bundled, anonymized, whatever? Why is it legal to collect and sell data about miners? These are questions that didn't matter because the consequences of it being sold were trivial in the past, but now they are huge because the combination of those data sets and uh, basically tracking on the web allows you to create incredibly high-resolution views of people without them being aware, oh, completely, approving, completely. And, and without them benefiting in any way. 
from the consequences of what's done. If you, if I gave you a magic wand and said you could fire Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg, would you? No. No. No, for the same reason I wouldn't fire Steve Jobs at Apple. Because you have to change. Look, here's the problem. But Steve Jobs at Apple wasn't leading to the end of... I'm talking about the first, the first time around. Got it, the first fired. time around. Okay. So, so here, here's the way I handicap it. I think the problem is the business model. And the founder always has the greatest moral authority to change a business model. So it will go, if, you, if there's any chance of Facebook being cooperative in this thing, right, but, it helps to have Mark. But, the, but the, they haven't been cooperative. They've, uh, they've no, no, lied. No. They I, have... But he is, he is one good night's sleep away from the epiphany where that changes. You truly do believe that he is going to change? I didn't say that. What I, <laughs> what I said, it, let me go okay. to what I believe. What yeah. I believe is you have to change the business model. Wait, so, and, and, so you're saying that he's a good night's sleep from changing the business model or from changing his moral compass? Well, if he changes his moral compass, he will... That, that's the first step to going to the business model. But, Nick, here's the thing that I, that I want you to just understand. If you bring in, I don't know who you're going to pick to run this thing, but if you give them the existing business model with the current incentives of Wall Street, there is zero chance that they're going to fix the business model. Zero. I mean, they just had a record quarter. It's still the greatest advertising platform on earth. Yeah, but it's like stating the fact that they had a record quarter. I mean, this is the thing that upsets me about Facebook and analysts at CNBC and all these places where, you know, where everyone comes on and they're like, well, look at the numbers, look at the money, look at how much advertising they just made. That is not... Wall Street makes a hell of a lot of money. It is not a... A barometer of morality. No, no, no. That's and that's the problem, right? And my simple point is, if you have as the only metric that counts shareholder value, right? If your if your basic management philosophy of America, and this cuts across every industry, yep. is that that no other stakeholders' interests matter. Customers don't matter. Suppliers don't matter. Communities don't matter. Employees don't matter. If if that's your basic rubric, and that is Wall Street today, yeah, then. You're doomed, right? Basically, I don't think, look, you could bring in Mahatma Gandhi to run this company. If the incentive <laughs> systems don't change, you're going to have the so, same so, outcome. So you're saying that the it, the, has, it, it has, has to change from, from the Wall Street side? I'm saying I believe you have to impose change from the outside, right? I think that there is a teeny sliver that Mark, with his absolute control of the company, if you could have him get a good night's sleep and he could wake up with a... a shift in moral compass and and they've uploaded some new software to his robotic brain <laughs> you said that that's not my view <laughs> so so if if mark has this epiphany then he is in a uniquely attractive position to make the change absent that it has it to be has forced to be from, from the, the outside. outside and if it's the way to force it from the outside in my opinion is not to focus on facebook because honest to god when i look forward i'm way less worried about facebook going forward than i am about google and way less worried about facebook going forward than i am about microsoft and amazon because i look at at AI and the fact that we're making all the same mistakes with AI we made with social media, which is we're shipping products and letting the people who use it find the problems. So you wind up with you know the uh, facial recognition in Microsoft's case that I think didn't recognize women, and Google's case didn't recognize people of color. You wind up with the resume reading AIs that basically inherit because they're trained with data from a real world that has biases they inherit all the implicit biases based on gender and and race that you have in the real world into a, a machine 
where you can't verify how the choices are made and you can't appeal, or you see these things in mortgages where redline is essentially embedded in an AI because, again, you don't correct for implicit bias. And I'm sitting there going, how do we get here? How did people not see that incredibly obvious flaw? And well, I, look I, th- at- I think that I think that people do are now seeing. You know what's so fascinating? In the beginning of this conversation, you said to me that uh, before two thousand and uh, four, two thousand four, you have a situation where. Um, no technologies had been bad technologies because they died before they, they grew on the vine. And now we have a situation where in the last decade plus, all of them have had a bad side. All of them have had a negative, no matter what, whether it's the iPhone or Facebook yeah. or Twitter or, or anything. And I, the thing is, I think that we, you have a chorus of people that are now saying, wait a second, we've got to be careful. AI is going to happen at speeds way quicker than social media and this could be way worse than just Russia hacking our election. And yet we're still moving forward. The people that are making the decisions are still moving forward. Which is why I'm not spending time worrying about the psychology of people at Facebook in 2016. I'm spending my energy. Well, it's still, it's still the, it's the the same psychology that's taking place today. Precisely. No, 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 that's right. But you can see what the flaw is. The flaw is the Silicon Valley philosophy of ship the product, let the people who use it find the bugs and deal with them. And, I'm saying that has to end. I look at AI and I go, AI needs to have a requirement that's analogous to the FDA, safety, efficacy, and freedom from bias. And the difference between this and the FDA is you don't need a 10-year you know, uh, clinical trial to do it. You need to create standard pieces of software that everybody has to use in their AI that validates that the thing does what it says it's going to do, that you can validate for each individual transaction the decision rules that were made to make the choice so that there's a right of appeal. And you have standard data sets that you have to use ahead of time to validate the thing is free of bias. And I look at all that, and that stuff, it may take you a year or two to develop it, but so what? At that point, then you have a standard thing, then you know these things are safe, and you can now apply them to categories that actually empower people. I mean, it really bothers me that in AI... Three of the top use cases are taking away white-collar jobs, and they're doing it in these really flawed ways. Then secondly, creating filter bubbles on Facebook, Google, and other places that essentially influence what people think. And then recommendation engines that basically tell people what music to play or what thing to enjoy or buy. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. You're telling me I'm going to delegate to a computer what used to be the thing that was my career I'm going to delegate what I think, and I'm going to delegate the things I enjoy. That does not sound empowering to me. That feels a little bit like, like you know, a dehumanizing model. And it doesn't need to be that way. This should be the penicillin, the technology penicillin of the 21st century. We, we can apply this to all these things that are intensely valuable. And maybe it'll take you 10% longer to do things that are useful rather than things that are harmful. I think it's worth it. When you look at the... The fact that we live in a world where these CEOs of these companies have the ability to essentially—they don't really answer to anyone. And as you right. said, you know, you, you know, Mark could wake up one day and be like, "Oh, my moral compass has changed," or Jeff Bezos or whoever. And barring that happen, is there a world where 
the boards of directors and the investors are the ones that actually force oh, change in the outside. And, and by the way, and 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 the people who use the products. I mean, well, but well, the people who use the products, I think most of them are are spellbound by them. You know, so, I mean, but that's my my goal with the whole thing. The reason I wrote a book was to break the spell, because. What I want everybody to understand is we have way more power in this than we realize. Because, look, I'm as addicted as anybody. Are you still on Facebook? Yeah. You are. I am. But I'm off Google. And so here's the thing. Getting off Google, and you've seen, because you have a compatriot in another uh, uh, publication who's done this continuing series of blog posts of the disaster of trying to get off Google. And she was more embedded in Google than I was, but I decided I was going to go Google free and I realized I wanted to make it into a video game. So it's, it's Frogger for me. I'm the frog. Google's the river. The logs are the other products. So DuckDuckGo and Safari and 1Password and, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ghostery and the Microsoft apps, you know, these are all the things I use instead. Every once in a while I'm on the web and I'll inadvertently hit a portion of a, a thing about a restaurant and hit the map and get into google maps i fall into the river i start again but my high score is two months and it's really why I, why not with, why not do that with social media instead of google i've just written a book <laughs> that, where i'm trying to reach people on facebook and instagram yeah i can't very well get off facebook and instagram if i want to reach those people and plus i run a rock and roll band i mean facebook is still this great platform i'd like to believe there's a way for me and a way for every user to coexist with these platforms. My basic point is you don't need to go cold turkey on Google, but you don't want to do everything on one platform or they literally strip you naked and they have the power to influence your life in ways you cannot protect yourself against. Right? People say to me, Roger, my data's out there. I have nothing to worry about because I'm a good guy. And I go, that's true, but it's irrelevant. There is this thing called a behavioral surplus, which is the things that they can learn from other people that they can use against you mm-hmm. and things they learn from you that they can use against other people. And Google was the first to discover this. And it is, you know, there are an awful lot of what has caused the polarization in society is the use of that behavioral surplus against the interests of the broad public. A lot of what's going on with people believing conspiracy theories comes from the same thing. And I look at this and I go, I don't think find very many people who think that increasing polarization is a legitimate use of technology that that causing people to uh, have you know increasing uh, the bullying of kids is a legitimate use of technology and yet these are all things that are byproducts of a business model that's completely unconstrained and I just think, look, we have political power, too. We can call our elected officials and say, guys, you have got to bring these guys to heel. Yes, but none of those things seem to be working yet. No, so, hang on. I, I, so uh, this is a place where I'm spending a lot of time, and I want to push back. Everybody says, Roger, regulation never works in tech. That oh, is I con- disagree with that. That's bullshit. Right. That it is absolutely does. It obviously works. And, and they also say, well, these guys were so bad at those hearings. I'm going, the problem is that the hearing that mattered, the one with, with Mark, at the one hour and 40 minute mark or one hour and 50 minute mark, the FBI raided Paul Manafort's home. And, mm-hmm. and to that point, all you'd seen is people with an average age of like 75 who've never been on a computer. If you had watched the House <laughs> hearing the next day, yeah. they basically cut Mark up with a sushi knife, okay? And they, were, they understood metadata. And my point here is 
between September or sorry October of 2017 when the alarm went off and people said, okay, we can't trust tech anymore. And now they've quickly gotten up to speed. We've just elected 40 digital natives to the House of Representatives. And everybody knows this is a problem. Do not underestimate how much we can change the incentives in this business. I believe having a real debate about why financial data is sold and why geolocation data is sold, those are not complicated debates to have. No. We can have a fiduciary rule that simply says, hang on, if you lose people's privacy because you're careless with data, you are legally reliable. This, this thing of everybody hiding behind forced arbitration that there's no ability to litigate. That's the thing we got to get you rid of. You all these companies that are doing because that, Because yeah. that changes their financial incentives. Um, so you have, I'm sure you've been asked this question, and, uh, and I'm sure you have a great answer for it, but I'm ask it anyway. You've made a tremendous amount of money on these companies. Why not, do you sometimes like go to the ATM and pull out a million dollars and think to yourself like, ugh, I can't believe I profited off Facebook or something like that? So... Here's what I say to people. For me, I made a lot. The nature of the structure of my funds was that the vast majority of the money was made by the people who were investors in the funds. But for me, I did very, very well from it. And my philosophy on this was exactly the same as it was for everything I've ever done, which is basically give it away. I don't have children, and my wife and I have an incredibly active philanthropic program, which we've been doing for a long time. But the other thing I'm doing is I am totally self-financing my activism. So I'm actually using the money I made from Facebook to fight this battle. So, for example, and this is where it gets really weird. I'm personally buying all these ads on social media to make people aware of these problems, to spread the things I'm talking about. So when I do a, a micro post on courts or someplace, you know, I'll then put it on Facebook and Instagram and promote the crap out of it. And it's an imperfect situation. It's asymmetrical. I concede that, right? And... My simple point to everybody is, look, I'm doing my best to try to fix a problem I, was, I played a small role in creating. And I don't want anybody to think that I somehow think I'm specially virtuous. I'm just doing what I believe in. I'm doing it the best way I can. If people have ideas for how I can improve on it, I'm always listening. But it, it's the sort of thing where if one person asked, well, why should we believe you? And I'm sitting there going, you don't have to believe me. I'm just a messenger. Pay attention to the message, okay? And recognize that, that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I don't have to be doing this. I've chosen to do this. And if it doesn't work out, so be it. But my goal is to leave the world a better place than I found it. And I didn't realize, and I'm really mad at myself for taking so long to see what was wrong here. And there has been legitimate criticisms like, dude, how did you not know that they were manipulating people? And the answer is, I was stupid, blind, whatever it was, I didn't see it. And that's just how it is. So I only have, you only have a few minutes left before you got to zip off to your next thing. But I, want, I have a bunch of questions, so I figure maybe we can do a quick lightning round. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you think Sheryl Sandberg is still at Facebook in five years? I don't know. I don't know who's at Facebook in five years. In fact, I think there's a very real risk that Facebook in five years is is a badly uh, disabled company. Well, my next question was, do you think Facebook is around in 20 years? But I guess... I, I think that Facebook is doing exactly what I... Is, is 
creating by its own actions the thing I warned them about in 2016, which is that they are, if you look at the Nielsen data, people are using the site a lot less in the United States of America, like 20% less than a year ago. And, and you know, if you look at, they, they basically reject three quarters of a billion inauthentic counts a quarter, which means that you can't really pay attention to the monthly active users because they have so much flexibility to mess with that number. So you want to pay attention to the Nielsen usage numbers, and those are not attractive. My feed right now is I get an ad every fifth or sixth post. That's at least twice the loading of a year ago. The thing is practically one ads right now. I think Facebook's in real trouble on the mothership, and I think as soon as people figure out how dangerous Instagram is, they're going to be in real trouble on Instagram too. Um, all right, your uh, your uh, your handler is waving behind you. They have to go. So I have a very quick last question. If you could say, if you could tweet at Mark Zuckerberg, two hundred eighty characters, what would you say to him? I would say, be the hero in your own story. You can do so much more good by fixing Facebook than you can with a foundation. Do that. Well, that's a that's a good tweet. Hopefully, he sees it. Roger, thank you so much. This Nick, has what been a pleasure. fascinating. So, your book is Zucked: um, Waking Up to uh, the Facebook Catastrophe. Roger Magme, I really appreciate you taking Available the time. Available anywhere. Listen. Available everywhere we'll on see. the internet. On the internet, exactly. <laughs> thank you all, Nick. I thank really you appreciate so much. It. I really appreciate it. Thanks to my two guests this week, Casey Newton and Roger McNamee. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a glowing, fantastic review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Groa, Robinhood, Molecule, and Green Chef. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you all next week.